Welcome back to another episode of Anthology of Horror. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, and sometimes your narrator, Springheel Jack. And I had several suggestions that I do the episode that we're going to do today and potentially make an arc out of it, and kind of continue with my Western theme that I had going last week of Indian Wars, General Custer getting fucked, uh, more Indian Wars, because... uh, it's a very interesting time in American history. A lot of people love the Old West. I'm certainly one of them. Um, I love at least the stories. I love the history. Uh, it's great stuff. So, today, this is one of my favorite stories from the Old West by far. This is the story of Billy the Kid. On April 28, 1881, 21-year-old Henry McCarty a.k.a. William H. Bonney, a.k.a. Billy the Kid, was just days from being hung for murder. He was promised a pardon from the governor of New Mexico, and it never quite materialized, unfortunately, and Billy was now in the custody of the Lincoln County Sheriff, Pat Garrett, and two well-meaning deputies, and it was Thursday evening around 6 o'clock. To the two guards on duty, Pat Garrett had gone over it time and time again. Don't be taken in by this guy's charm. Whatever he tells you, Do not take him seriously, because at the first chance he gets, he'll shoot you in the head and leave. Billy the Kid is extremely intelligent, that's what most people don't realize, and he was able to get them to underestimate him by pulling that, well, I'm just a simple country man, and just made him think that he was a dumb fucking hick kid. And he wasn't, he was sharp. Uh, Time and time again, they, they underestimated him, and time and time again, he fucking escaped from jail. I think he thinks... Somewhere in there, he's going to get out of it every time that he was captured. I think he never had his fighting spirit broken. Escaping was always part of the agenda, and he just knew he could do it. And that power of, uh, power of fucking persuasion, or whatever they call it. Billy the Kid had been on the run from the law since the age of 15. Just a few short years was all it took for him to become the most wanted man west of Pigos. He was demonized by the popular press, and... The popular press at the time was set on cleaning up and civilizing New Mexico. Because of them, Billy was portrayed as a bloodthirsty, horrible killer and a ruthless cuss hell-bent on anarchy and despair. It's like everyone in the territory was beating the fucking war drums for this guy. They blamed him for all of the, the problem in New Mexico when realistically it wasn't because of him. Because of corrupt politicians, corrupt sheriffs, as we'll see, uh... Cattle barons. But they all thought, let's get rid of the kid. Let's hunt him down. Let's civilize this fucking territory. And Billy the Kid came of age at the moment the myth of the Wild West was formed. At a time when outlaws were made famous overnight in pages of terrible books, he took his place alongside men like Jesse James, Butch Cassidy, and Wyatt Earp. I grew up with Billy the Kid, with the myths, the legends, and shit, and... Everyone had a story about him, or everyone said that their grandpa knew him. He was the Robin Hood of the uh, the American Southwest. He was a rebel and an outlaw, and according to everybody that gave written testimony, he was good-looking, glamorous, but it's probably not that realistic, because you have to separate the bullshit and romantic, uh, romanticized, mythical side of Billy the Kid and look at him for what he actually was, which a lot of people don't do, but he was a fucking cop killer, and he murdered innocent people. In this period, time period in America, you can you can see the formation of something very powerful, uh, and that was the 20th century culture of gangster heroes, like anti-heroes. The idea that a man of violence is a man of action, of many deeds and few words. And that there's no real difference between fame and infamy, which is still true to this day, I think. Gene Simmons said that the only there's no such thing as bad publicity. I think it was Gene Simmons. The young man who would come to symbolize the freedom and rebellion of the Wild West was Billy the Kid. He likely began his life in the teeming slums of New York City, although not much is known about him. He was born Henry McCarty, the son of two Irish immigrants. His mother, Catherine, had fled Ireland to escape the devastating famine of the 1840s only to find squalor and hardship in America. It's really not known who Henry's father was or how he had died, but Catherine was determined to give her son a better life than the one that she had left in Ireland. 
Shortly after the Civil War, Henry and his mother joined a wave of humanity heading west in search of new opportunities, the Manifest Destiny Wave. So let me just say, Henry's mom was tough as fuck, because while they were out on the trail, walking to where they wanted to go, she taught Henry how to read and write, made sure that he knew. She also taught him Irish folk songs to further pass the time. What a badass, dude. Honestly, she's a tough lady. I fuck, fuck that walk. That would have been terrible. So, while he was out there, he learned to survive in backcountry with his mother and the hardscrabble life that was the Western Pioneer's life. They had been lured by the promise of silver to uh, Silver City in New Mexico. So, Henry and his mother and her new husband prospector named William Antrim settled in the remote outpost that is Silver City in southeastern New Mexico. By 1873, New Mexico had been a territory of the United States for over 20 years. But, to American settlers fresh off the Santa Fe Trail, the region seemed like an exotic foreign country, and it fucking might as well have been. There were a ton of indigenous Mexicans living in the area, obviously. It was territory of Mexico not too long before this. So there was Mexican culture everywhere. And it was a mix, it was a weird blend of, uh, of all the cultures that were in the area. So, in the bustling plazas of, of the capital, traders can be heard bartering for livestock in Spanish, French, and Navajo. The Pueblo Indians also carved into the mountainside their famous, uh, their famous stone-dwelling homes. You know them if you saw them. Very famous. Carved into the side of a mountain. It's fucking cool. So, it's a place... Uh, that, that was really a, a very good example of mixing cultures. So you have Latino Mexicans influence in that region, you have Anglo influence, and you have Native American influence also. It was a wild, unbelievable land of terrible violence and great scenic beauty, actually. It was beautiful. It still is. But a shitty mix of cultures, because everyone hated each other. They were all stealing... Well, they were all having their land stolen by the Anglos, Really. Uh, young Henry McCarty was captivated by the world that he discovered instantly, embracing the new Mexican culture. He loved it. He ate it up immediately. He became a familiar presence in Hispanic district of Silver City, known as Chihuahua Hill. In months, he was ingrained in the community. He also learned how to speak Spanish fluently, quickly, within a month. He took to wearing some uh, gueros and beaded moccasins, too. And at nighttime... He would learn how to dance the Mexican Fandango. Supposedly, he was quite the dancer. He would go to the Mexican district in Silver City with his mom, with Catherine, and they'd uh, go to the dances, and they'd dance together, they'd sing songs together, and he certainly caught the eye of uh, many young senoritas. The Hispanic mothers and the old aunts and their fathers, they liked him enough to let him hang out with their daughters and dance. Their daughters were pretty protected. He was a well-respected member of the community. People, they must have embraced him. He must have embraced the culture because they trusted him. He was very respectful, they said. Very proper, very formal. Um, because the Mexicans, not to be terribly stereotypical, but in the time and the region, they said that they liked their formalities. Uh, and he had this innate charm. He often talked about the sort of... Uh, he had a squirrely look on his face all the time, they said. And it might have just been the way that his mouth was shaped, but he always seemed like he was smiling, like he was up to something. He was always laughing. Uh, when he was 15 years old, though, unfortunately, his mother became gravely ill with tuberculosis. She had hoped the dry mountain air that banked off the Rockies and settled over the valleys would restore her health. But, unfortunately, galloping consumption, as it was known then, proved to be far too much for Catherine. She died in Silver City in 1874. Damn. The kid is a young teenager when his mom died, and uh, Catherine was his one connection to stability. Like, his mother... <sighs> Man, sad... His mother raised him here, made sure that he was fed, made sure that he went to school. But once she was gone, the stepfather, the fucking drunk prospector, William Andrews, didn't really care about the upbringing of his stepson. So he abandoned the boy. He fucking bailed. I mean, imagine being out in a distant and strange land, and then you've lost the only connection that you had to who you were and into your past. That's fucking devastating. He was 15 years old. 
an orphan in a tough and transient mining town. It didn't take long for him to get into shit. Or for shit to find him, I suppose. In the saloons and brothels in the center of town, he hustled to make a few bucks however he could, because he needed to eat. At night, he would bunk down in boarding houses with a disgusting cast of strangers, similar to hostels. But one of them was a streetwise petty thief known in the area as Sombrero Jack. On the afternoon of September 4th, 1875, Henry acted as the lookout while Sombrero Jack robbed the Chinese laundry. Uh, some of the plunder, though, including a loaded revolver, was discovered in Henry's room not long after he was shortly and quickly arrested. Uh, while he was alone in a cramped 4x5 cell, Henry could hear the bustle of downtown Silver City through the tiny barred window. He knew it might take up to three months for a traveling judge to make it to this part of the shit part of New Mexico. And that was a lifetime to a 16-year-old. He had, I'm sure in his mind, he had things to do. One of the things about the kid is that he was able to really bullshit people. He was able to get them to think he was, he was inconsequential and stupid. He was able to calm the prison guards into granting him time outside of his cell. When the coast was clear, Henry was no more than 130 pounds with his boots on, keep in mind. He forced his entire body into the chimney. Fucking insane. And the sheriff returned to the jail only to find that there was no kid. The cells were empty. The hallways were empty. Uh, no sign of... He just disappeared. If he had stayed and hadn't tried to escape, it probably would have been a slap on the wrist. The robbery shit. Had he stayed there. But, with the jailbreak, that put him on a whole different level. He was a wanted man at the age of 16 because of that. And he knew it, so he decided to head west for Arizona, where he hoped to get a fresh start. Because that's all he wanted. But with no horse and no gun, and no money really, he was on the run in some of the most hostile land in the country. Uh, the country was so, so dangerous. The countryside was brutal. Staying alive was a trick. It was, there was a lot that went into it. It was a country where everything was against you, everybody was against you, and anything that could kill you fucking would. If you had anything worth taking and you were alone, you were dead. The territory out there was brutal. The landscape itself would fucking kill you. Terrible. It's The people that survived had to embrace the harshness of the desert, which not everyone can do. You have to be a real fucking weirdo, unique individual to survive in the desert like that, especially for 500 miles of unforgiving just marching. <laughs> but... After 500 miles of unforgiving desert, young Henry arrived in a remote army outpost in Arizona, known as Camp Grant, where he stopped running long enough to look for an honest day's work. That's all he wanted. He just wanted to fucking... just wanted to make it work. I, I, I really like that as a young kid, he wasn't inherently just like, well, fuck all y'all, I'm gonna steal what I need, I'm gonna get mine. He kind of was, but he was looking for honest work first, and he only resorted to stealing and violence when he had to. At least initially. Uh, like a lot of kids in the time, he wanted to be a cowboy. That was his dream. He was a fucking teenager. The whole myth that surrounds cowboys, uh, just just the same way that it does now. Apparently he was very good at it, too, because uh, the best work that he was able to get was working on a chalk line as a cook, which he didn't necessarily want to do, but he tried. They thought he was too small and too frail to be working with other cowboys. Remember, he's 130 pounds. He's tiny. Once again... He was back hustling for money. He'd become a skilled gambler and a dealer of three-card Monty. And fell in with a gang of seasoned outlaws who taught him the finer points of stealing horses. Soon, very soon, he earned enough to buy the one thing that he needed most to survive. A six-shooter. It was an equalizer. You know, it was something that gave you just instant respect. You put on your six-shooter, and you get that initial fear from people that didn't know you. He quickly became real good with it, too. He was fast. He learned how to handle himself because he was fucking tiny, and he got fucked with all the time. Because uh, that's how you had to get along. You had to learn how to handle yourself with a gun. If you were going to carry it, fucking A. Especially in raw backcountry, you, you need to know what you're doing. In the years since escaping the Silver City Jail, Henry had started to make a name for himself as an outlaw. He had taken to wearing a gambler's ring on his pinky. And he wore brightly colored scarves around his neck much like Custer. He spent his nights hanging out with other shitheads at Rocky Saloons where he picked up the nickname The Kid because he was a kid. So he was 
known as the kid because of how young he was. It's clever. It's real clever. On the evening of August 17th, 1877, the, the kid danced across the line from which he could never return. And it was when he ran into a local thug named Frank Kale, or Frank Cahill, rather. Uh, he was a real boastful son of a bitch bully who thought it was fun to slap the kid around just to amuse the other patrons, which it didn't really. He was amusing himself. And he did it one time too many. And he started really to go in on the kid at one point, and he had him on the ground. One thing led to another. He got him down and was just pounding his face, and, and the kid was slowly creeping his hand towards the gun in his belt. Keep in mind, teenager. So, got pushed to this point. He didn't look for it. He was not looking for this fight, according to everyone that, that, that testified that was there. So, you know, once this story... Once Billy the Kid was a sensation, of course all these people crawl out from under the fucking barn they've been living under to give their stories. So there's a fair amount of records. Uh, so he was creeping his hands toward the gun in his belt. Cahill tried to stop it. Coincidentally, Cahill is the name of one of the one of the best drummers I've ever played with. <laughs> Music note. Uh, but Cahill couldn't stop it. He shot, and it was a shit way to die, because it took Cahill all night to die, because he got shot in the fucking gut, which... Agonizing, I bet. Fucking agonizing. Said he died screaming and in pain. Uh, so then, murder is what he would have been charged with, and the, the uh, punishment was death, obviously by hanging. And it's uh, at this point he'd crossed a whole another line. It was quite a bit different than stealing something from a fucking laundry place. And he, jeez, he really had reasons to be afraid at this point, especially because he was already on the run. He fucking murdered someone. And even if he stayed, he maybe could have made an argument for self-defense, but he wasn't willing to risk it, so he fucking booked it. <sighs> Unfortunately, he had undergone a quick and fiery baptism from boy to full-blown outlaw. Now he can only count on his wits and his guns and his horse. Must have been a profound psychological impact up up upon Billy because he was still a fucking kid. He was very impressionable, very vulnerable, and he was alone, so it's fucked up. He killed somebody as a teenager and then just wandered the desert. Uh, what does it take to kill a man, though? I think it it ruined his psyche, I think, and I think it further settled Billy into the role of an outlaw. Because there was no turning back at that point. He'd already spilled blood, and I think he would see it that way, too. New Mexico is a great place to be fugitive. There are huge distances for many people to hide. It's a, it's a great playground of fucking fugitives, especially at the time. A getaway artist, especially one like Billy that spoke the local language and who was able, uh, easy, easily able to ingrain himself in Mexican culture, he was fucking gone. He disappeared. He had endeared himself enough to the Mexican people that they harbored him as a fugitive. In 1877, while he was riding a stolen gray mare, the kid crossed the Arizona border back into New Mexico. But at this time, he changed his name. He was now going by the name William H. Bonney, but quietly going by William H. Bonney. He made his way across the territory, catching a meal where he could and relying on the hospitality of the Hispanic farmers uh, that, hit, that ranches dotted the countryside for generations. Unfortunately for the ranchers, though, the times were changing in New Mexico. At the end of the Civil War, American businessmen had flocked to the territory looking to profit off the vast new land. The men of this Anglo establishment quickly became the largest property owners in New Mexico, often wrestling land directly from the Hispanic ranchers with the aid of unscrupulous bankers. It was a rigged legal system at its best. Uh, when all else fails, the business is that of the losing end of the gun. And uh, there was a lot of that going on at the time in New Mexico. It was incredible that these people controlled so much um, the people that got into the railroad business and cattle business, they, they were the cornerstone of everything, of the entire fucking empire that was the West. Some of the most lucrative land holdings were in Lincoln County, which was the biggest county in New Mexico. For the past decade or so, the whole county had been run by this tough fucking asshole of an Irish immigrant, Lawrence Murphy, and another guy, James Doyle. Their uh, business was primarily in cattle ranching. They had government beef contracts with the military base close by. But they were, they gave no fucks. They were tough sons of bitches. 
uh, for probably 30,000 square miles, or 3,000 square miles, rather, if they didn't get a piece of the action that was going on in a business transaction, they would just fucking kill you. Murphy and Dolan's Enterprise came to be known as The House, and it was named for their headquarters, which was a house in the town of Lincoln. The house owned everything, and it had pretty much its own stronghold and stranglehold on the people of the county because they owned everyone. Everyone owed them money. It was fucked up. They had no competition. They just ruled the place like they were fucking feudal lords, but uh, they weren't terrible. They They weren't terrible to everyone. They were good to their friends way before they were fair to anyone else. But if you fucked them over, you better watch out. And, you know, they would have been well-served. You would have been well-served to stay the fuck out of their way, too. That's for sure. But somebody was getting in their way. It was a man named John Tunstall. He was a 23-year-old son of a wealthy British merchant. And he'd recently arrived in town with grand plans to build a cattle empire. And uh, it seemed like he had seemingly limitless funds to match and get it rolling. Though he was young and had pretty much no experience in ranching, he knew about competing... And he knew that competing with the house would be brutal, but he knew he could do it. So Tunstall started spreading the word that he was looking for a few good cowboys, but not cowboys that weren't only just good with a rope, but also really handy with a pistol and a rifle. He said he would pay well, and he was hiring a bunch of people. So enter the kid. He arrived in Lincoln in 1877 and was immediately recognized. And then he was also... Uh, they tacked on the charge he was jailed for stealing horses from the Tunstall Ranch. Not only did they recognize him while he was leaving, they recognized the horses as stolen as well. He just had no luck in this one. Much, But much to the kid's surprise, instead of pressing charges, Tunstall offered him a job. Couldn't believe his luck. He couldn't believe it when he got his chance to go straight. He fucking jumped at it. He took it. Uh... One of the things that the kid said later was that Tunstall was the only man that treated him like he was decent and white. I mean, he... It's a fucked up way to say it. He didn't treat him like he was riffraff or, or a criminal or a horse thief. He treated him like he was a human. And for somebody like the kid, who was just a teenager, somebody taking a chance on you like that, that's a big deal. So the kid just was... He would never forget it. The kid joined a group of young men who, like himself, were all kind of listless outsiders, young men who had been drifting through the desert trying to scrape together a living on the plains... And together, they learned how to be proper cowboys. At night, they told stories, they slept under the stars. Tunstall provided money to keep them in boots and buy them bullets. And most of all, he kept them going with the promise of a future. Which, sometimes that's all you need. But to Murphy and Dolan, the two Irish immigrants who enjoyed unfettered power over the county for years, the idea of a fucking well-heeled Englishman moving in with gun hands on their turf was unthinkable. Let's remember that both Murphy Murphy and Dolan were Irish immigrants, and they had grown up in rural Ireland. They'd experienced proportionately, uh, what is proportionately still in human history, the most deadly famine that's ever been, and uh, it it certainly didn't make people nice to experience that. It made them fucking hungry, ruthless, and it gave them extraordinary kinds of hunger and the ability to just do fucked up shit to people. It's a hunger that you you never want to have this happen to you or your family again. So you think they're going to sit still and let some fucking English guy come in and take it all from them? Again? This is... No. This is the very kind of Englishman that kept their people under the heel of the fucking English boot while they were stomping on their face and rubbing it in the dirt made them starve. And now they came to fucking New Mexico to do the exact same thing. He's, he wasn't going to take it from them. Ah, man. And they'd be goddamned if it was going to happen, which I understand. It's fucked up, but I understand. So the House concocted a plan to get rid of the Tunstall problem once and for all. They bought Sheriff William Brady to enforce a phony court, court order that essentially confiscated all of Tunstall's horses and cattle, crippling his business. Fucked up. And on the afternoon of February 18th, 1878, John Tunstall, uh, an honest guy, rode into town to challenge the claim on his property. Along the way, though, he ran into the sheriffs. Uh, When they find Tunstall, of course, he rides forward to talk to him because he's an honest fucking guy. He believed the law will protect him. 
but they didn't give him a chance. They shoot him out of his saddle. That's the way the law worked, though, in Lincoln County. And so he was on the ground, dead. Uh, one of one of the sheriffs dismounted, walked over, and just because he was, he just shot him fucking twice, I think, in the head. And just because they were fucking assholes, they shot his horse. Uh, they arranged the body to look like the man and the horse were spooning. And they put his hat on the horse's head and they folded John's coat underneath him and put it under his head because they thought it was a fucking hilarious joke. It was not. Tunstall and his gang... Tunstall's uh, group of men, the boys he'd hired, his cowboys, retrieved his dead body. And they buried him in his ranch. They gave him a proper burial. Unfortunately for the kid, he learned the hard truth about the way shit worked in New Mexico, though. And the West. Uh, to him, Murphy, Dolan... Murphy, Dolan, the company, and the house, and the whole system was corrupt. On the day that they buried John, Billy made a pact with Doc Spurlock and the other men who'd worked for Tunstall that they would form their own cowboy goon squad. They called themselves the Regulators, and they vowed to dispense their own brand of justice in the name of John Tunstall. Uh, Billy had the capacity above others for loyalty. He was extremely loyal. He was loyal to anyone that would give him the chance to be loyal to him, really. He, he was dead set on avenging Tunstall's death. He would kill a fucking governor if he had to. Uh, Tunstall was killed... And it fucking ruined him. He was hell-bent on getting his revenge. He's going to get every man that was involved in this killing, and he has a particular hit list that he wants to take care of, because John was the only guy that took a chance on him. And they fucking killed him in cold blood, just because of a fucking cattle dispute. William Brady was the sheriff of Lincoln County, and he was the man that the regulators believed ordered John Tunstall's murder. So he was number one on the list. Essentially, what Sheriff Brady had done was he hired members of the Jesse Evans gang, who were hired goons from the uh, Murphy Dolan house faction, and he hired them to fucking harass other commercial competition in Lincoln and to fucking put the stomp on John Tunstall. Regulators knew that he had, the regulators knew that he had done that, but they couldn't necessarily prove it, and they uh, they needed that needed to wait for their opportunity to fucking put the sheriff into his place and fucking get rid of him. So, on April Fool's Day, 1878, they got their chance to even the score, at least with Sheriff Brady. On that day in Lincoln, the kid and several of the regulators saw the sheriff walking the street with several of his, uh, several of his deputies. I'm sure they knew his pattern. I'm sure they were casing the place. They knew that he took a morning stroll every day, I would imagine. And so they were behind a building wall. The kid and his fellow regulators were hiding, waiting for him. And then once they were able to, the kid and the regulators put over 24 shots into Sheriff Brady. He was dead before he hit the ground. They fucking assassinated him. There was no doubt about it. It was murder. But it was deserved. They didn't think that Brady deserved any better after he'd sent known killers to murder John Tunstall, an honest businessman. Uh, Brady was a murderer, even though he wore a badge. So they didn't they didn't give a shit. They shot him like a dog because that's what he deserved. He was a fucking dog. If it was a war, then that was the only way they were going to get decent law around there is to kill the corrupt law that had fucking worked its way into the ass of the, of the county like a tick. We've got to put the law back into Lincoln County their way. So what started off as a revenge killing, sparked by an old world rivalry, really, between the English and the Irish, quickly spiraled into full-blown county-wide fucking anarchy. The regulators versus the House, they were engaged in full-blown gang warfare. They ambushed each other in the countryside, they fucking did, did ride-by shootings, they squared off in the center of town. Uh, with each encounter, every time, the body count rose. In a few weeks of the fighting, the press began calling the conflict the Lincoln County War. Was was like the boiling point, the culmination of a ton of hostility that had been bubbling in this, this area for years. Finally, everybody got pissed off enough and there was enough catalyst that they took up arms and said, fuck you, let's finish this. And this was not just regulators versus the house. This was fucking Mexican ranchers versus white ranchers. It turned into a fucking free-for-all. As um, one of the regulators recalled, everybody had to join up on one side or the other for the most part, so there was just 
everybody was airing their hard feelings by the way of shooting at people. Which the Irish were pretty comfortable with, apparently. The Englishman John Tunstall, he he didn't piss off any of the uh, the local Mexicans or the Native American population. He just pissed off the Irish. And the regulators were able to talk their way with those two groups, like piss them off enough with the Irish ranchers that had owned the monopoly on everything in the county. They stirred the pot, and they pissed off everybody against the Irish that they were able to access and talk to them. So the law completely broke down at this point. There was no semblance of, of law and order. The sheriffs that were there had fled because they knew they were going to get killed. Uh, and every fucking guy with a gun there was ready to kill somebody. The kid watched many more of his friends die in the stupid fucking senseless violence that followed. Simply by staying alive, he became one of the leaders of the regulators, which they were... There's a lot of them. And in the process, he made a name for himself as a vicious killer and fearsome fighter. The remarkable thing, though, is that he's the only one of the guys that was there in every single skirmish, every fight, and every face-off. He was there. And he just kept getting better at killing people. I think he just gets stuck in the logic of the conflict, and I think he does what young men of his, his age have done throughout history, which is fucking fight until... You know, he feels that the dead have been avenged. That's that's war. That's young men shooting each other and old men talking. And he just keeps going because he keeps getting angry and fired up every time one of his buddies gets killed. It's very intense, and it's a very intimate conflict. There's a lot of fucking... A lot of hatred out there. I think there, he had a sense of... Uh, he was going to die anyway. He didn't have a sense to go, so he might as well die a man in his mind. Die with some balls. And... The, he, he felt that way, I think, too, because the people that he was connected to that might have been able to get him out of the shithole that he was in, they were dead. They might have been able to give him a job or, you know, move him somewhere. They are all being killed. So, how were they able to get away with all this, you might ask? Due to the murders that had been happening in Lincoln County, especially Sheriff Brady, the Tunstall supporters actively supported the formation of the vigilante group known as the Regulators. And it was led unofficially by Richard Dick Brewer. There were other members that included gunmen such as Charlie Beaudry, John Middleton, Frank Coe, George Coe, Big Jim French, and Doc Skurlock. Also, of course, most notably, William H. Bonney, a.k.a. Billy the Kid. The, the conflict, the entirety of the war, resulted in numerous deaths on both sides. So as I said, that... They, ne they needed to get approval for this somehow to keep the general public, like, kind of on board. Just because they wanted people that would be able to help them. So, they got the idea from the posse of men that killed and chased John Tunstall. They were, um, they got the idea to deputize themselves. So they could, uh, hide behind a thin veil of legal, eh, a little bit of legal ground to stand on, so... His ranch hands and other citizens that were pissed off about the whole thing and actively fighting against Murphy Dolan, the house, um, they received the cloak of legality from the Justice of the Peace of the town of Lincoln, whose name was John Wilson, coincidentally. Coincidentally, because one of my friends is named that. Justice of the Peace Wilson issued warrants for the arrest of John Tunstall's killers and appointed regulator Dick Brewer, as I said, a special constable to execute the warrants. Additionally, regulator Robert Wideman, that's unfortunate, who previously secured an appointment as deputy U.S. Marshal, was given permission to form a civilian posse with deputies of his choosing and arrest the accused, not murder. So the Lincoln County War and the regulators would launch Billy the Kid to everlasting fame. However, in reality... Other regulators, for certain, Doc Skurlock, were closer to actually being gunmen than William H. Bonney was. In some cases, Billy the Kid was credited with killings that were, in fact, carried out by other members of the gang. Or by the, uh, the law-abiding deputized squad. By the regulators' end, any killing committed by them had his name as the primary murderer. Whether he was the shooter or not. But he was there for all of them, so he got blamed for pretty much everything. It would eventually be detrimental to his attempts at amnesty later on down the road. The regulators went through several different leaders, all but one being killed. Although Billy the Kid would achieve fame as a member of the regulators, he never led them. The first leader, as played by Charlie Sheen in Young Guns, was Richard Dick Brewer, 
killed later by Buckshot Roberts and replaced by Frank McNabb, who was killed by a member of the Seven Rivers Warriors. McNabb was replaced by the Regulator's final leader, Doc Skurlock. William Bonney, a.k.a. Billy the Kid, never made an effort to become well-known or to be the main subject of news reports or even talked about uh, in places during the Range War. He didn't want to be noticed, just wanted to fucking kill people. Frank Coe commented years later that he never pushed in his advice or opinions, but he had a wonderful presence of mind. (laughs) Wow. And there were well over probably 30 members of this group. So the war, a bit of a sum up, started officially on February 18th of 1878 when John Tunstall was killed by a deputized gang that comprised the Jesse Evans gang and the Tom Hill gang. Uh, And they killed him on his own property in an attempt to serve a bullshit seizure warrant for his livestock. March 1st, Dick Brewer is deputized, as well as the Regulators. They were all formed at that point. On March 6th, the Regulators arrest Bill Morton and Frank Baker. Three days later, Baker and Regulator William McCloskey are killed at Agua Negra. Jesus. With McCloskey believed to have betrayed the Regulators. March 9th, Territorial Governor Samuel Axtell decreed that John Wilson, Justice of the Peace, had been illegally appointed by the Lincoln County Commissioners. Wilson had deputized the Regulators and issued warrants for Tunstall's murderers. Axtell's degree meant that the Regulators' actions, formerly considered legal, were now beyond the law. Axtell was able to revoke Weidman's status as a Deputy U.S. Marshal, making Sheriff Brady and his men the only law officers still in Lincoln County. April 1st, Jim French, Frank McNabb, John Middleton, Fred, Waite, Henry Brown, Billy the Kid, and possibly Bob Weidman shoot at the sheriff and his deputies through makeshift portals of the adobe wall that they were hiding behind. William H. Bonney is wounded by Matthews while attempting to recover the rifle taken from him by Brady. Sheriff Brady and Deputy Hindman are shot mercilessly uh, well over a dozen times, about 24. April 4th, there is a massive gun battle at Blazer's Mill with Buckshot Roberts. Buckshot and Brewer are killed. Middleton was badly wounded. Bonnie is hit by another bullet. George Coe had his finger shot off. Ouch. April 18th. The Kid, Middleton, Waite, and Brown are indicted for the murder of Sheriff Brady. And uh, they are officially being hunted by other people now. Dolan, Evans, Matthews, and uh, others are indicted for the murder of Tunstall. Everyone is trying... They're trying to round up everyone at this point. They're trying to civilize the area. Frank McNabb, on the 29th, is killed by members of the Seven Rivers Warriors. Ab Saunders is badly wounded, and Frank Coe was captured. That was a bad day for the Regulators. April 30th, George Coe shoots and wounds Seven Rivers member Dutch Charlie in in Lincoln, and Seven Rivers, Rivers member Tom Green, Charles Marshall, and Jim Patterson, and John Galvin are killed that same day. And although the Regulators were blamed for this, their involvement, it was never proven. Seven Rivers gang members at the time were beginning to turn on one another as well. In May the 15th, the Regulators gained some revenge by storming the area around the Seven Rivers camp, capturing and killing Manuel Segovia, and that was the cowboy that had killed Frank McNabb, so they got him. Tit-for-tat killings, man. This is just it's like what's going on in Ireland, or what was going on in Ireland. July 15th, the Regulators were surrounded in Lincoln at the McSween House. Facing them were the Dolan, Murphy, and Seven Rivers Cowboys. So, this is what's known as the Battle of Lincoln. And this is a, this could be a fucking movie unto itself. This, this is such a trip. So, it was a five-day-long firefight between civilians, and it took place from July 15th through the 19th, 1878, in Lincoln, New Mexico. It's the largest armed battle of the Lincoln County War, for sure, and the climax of the civilian conflict that was going on at the time in Lincoln County, in the New Mexico Territory. The firefight had to be interrupted and stopped by the United States Cavalry, led by Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Dudley from Fort Stanton. He rode five days to break the shit up. Crazy. The battle for Lincoln... It took place at the home of this guy, McSween, who, although he was a non-combatant in the war, was the former partner of John Tunstall, 
and along with John Chisholm, had organized and financially supported the regulators' attempt to bring the killers to justice. So they were sympathizers. On July 15, 1878, McSween returned to Lincoln with about 41 additional supporters, 10 of whom he put up in his house personally, while the rest found beds throughout the town. Shortly afterwards, a large force hired by the Murphy-Dolan faction and led by Sheriff Pepin of Lincoln and surrounded the regulators that were at McSween's house. The posse and the regulators traded gunfire for the majority of the day. At least five Murphy-Dolan men were wounded in the first part of the exchange, while the regulators suffered no casualties. But during the next three days, little changed, with no further casualties reported. Finally, on July 18th, a cavalry detachment under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Dudley from Fort Stanton arrived. They had either been summoned by the frightened residents or by a report that a soldier had been wounded in Lincoln. The soldiers ended the skirmish quickly. By the end of the third day, the McSween supporters scattered and the town had um, departed, leaving just the contingent at the McSween homestead. So they scattered all the other ones. At some point during the night of July 18th through 19th, however, the McSween house was set on fire by somebody. When McSween and the others attempted to flee the following morning, he and several other regulators were shot and killed on sight. Now, under the leadership of Bonnie and Jim French, the regulators quickly reassessed their position and forced an escape from the burning adobe house. Reported casualty figures for the battle varied, but the regulators lost at least five men, including McSween, while Sheriff Pepin's posse suffered two dead, which were Bob Beckwith and Charlie Crawford, as well as those other guys that were killed that were just hired guns. The aftermath was the widow, Susan McSween, tried to have members of the Murphy-Dolan faction prosecuted, but no legal action was taken against them because they owned everyone. Colonel Dudley was placed under investigation for his failure to complete his mission without further bloodshed, but he was cleared a year later when the Army decided not to file charges. In September of 1878, President Hayes dismissed Governor Axtell, replacing him with Lew Wallace, who was determined to reduce the lawlessness in the territory. By that time, the remaining regulators had broken up and scattered. Skurlock, for instance, moved to Texas, where he settled down raised a family. He, his wife, and ten children managed the local mail station. Jesus. He died in Eastland, Texas, at 80 years old. The cousins Frank and George Coe also went straight, leaving Lincoln and living to be old men. In 1934, George Coe published his memoir, Frontier Fighter, recounting his part in the Lincoln County War and his friendship with Billy the Kid. Others, such as Billy the Kid, Charlie Beaudry, Tim O'Folliard, and Jose Chavez y Chavez, that's a badass name, remained on the wrong side of the law. However, the former Union Army General and current Governor, Lou Wallace, traveled to the town of Lincoln with a mandate to restore order, as I said, and he was mandated to restore it as quickly as possible. He came down and began to take testimony for everybody who was interested in who killed who, and uh, he was interested in who killed who in the war, and all the names that of those involved, so on and so forth. But nobody would testify because they were scared. Finally, though, he found a willing witness. And that witness was Billy the Kid, because in Lou Wallace, the kid saw an opportunity to clear his name. He wrote a letter to the governor offering to testify against members of the House if he received a full pardon. And he's trying he's trying to go straight again. Like, you know what, man, let's fuck this. We're done. We. He's quoted as saying, let me live a life. Damn it, I'm not 20 years of age yet. I don't want to be dead. Fuck it, it'll do, man. I hear that. And uh, the ever-reasonable Governor Wallace agreed to the deal. The kid appeared before a grand jury. Uh, due in part to his testimony, more than 200 indictments, many for murder, uh, were brought against the Murphy-Dolan faction, including the House leader, Jimmy Dolan. And when it came time to grant the kid his pardon, Wallace was nowhere to be found. He had returned to the governor's mansion in Santa Fe, leaving the kid's fate in the hands of the authorities in Lincoln. Uh, basically fucking him up the ass. Basically, I don't think Lou Wallace gave a fuck about Billy the Kid. He just wanted to get out of there, and he wanted to get out of there quick, which he did. When the governor was gone, the local district attorney, who was a close associate of Murphy and Dolan, dropped the charges against most of the house, but the indictments against the kid and the regulators remained. Before Billy could be taken back into custody, though, he slipped out of town. Disappeared. So for the next year, he hung around Fort Sumner on the Pecos River and developed a fateful friendship with a local bartender named Pat Garrett. 
who later was elected the sheriff of Lincoln County. As sheriff, Garrett was charged with arresting his friend, Henry McCarty, a.k.a. William H. Bonney, a.k.a. Billy, a.k.a. Billy the Kid, a.k.a. The Kid, who was, by now, almost exclusively known as Billy the Kid. At about the same time, Billy had formed a gang, referred to as the Rustlers, or simply as Billy the Kid's gang, who survived by stealing and rustling, just like he had done before. And the core members of the gang were Tom O'Folliard, Charlie Beaudry, Tom Pickett, Billy the Kid, Dirty Dave Rudabaugh, and Billy Wilson. On December 15th, 1880, Governor Wallace put a $500 reward on Billy's head, and Pat Garrett began his relentless pursuit of his friend, the outlaw, Billy the Kid. Garrett set up many a trap and an ambush in an attempt to apprehend Billy the Kid, but he seemed to have an animalistic instinct that warned him of danger. He was like a chupacabra, but it didn't last forever. On November 30th of 1880, Billy the Kid's gang, David Anderson, a.k.a. Billy Wilson, Dirty Dave Rudabaugh rode into White Oaks, New Mexico, and they ran into debt. He received so much press, all of it bad press, that the uh, the fat cats that had invested in ranchers and whatnot in Lincoln County and Lincoln were uh, really up the ass of all the politicians that they knew to uh, get rid of the kid so they could start civilizing the territory. Uh, man. In 1880, an enterprising newspaper editor named J.H. Cougar Kugler gave the kid his most famous alias, which apparently nobody had done until now. And soon, a notice appeared in town squares across the territory. Wanted, dead or alive, Billy the Kid. In the spring of 1880, a traveling photographer arrived in Fort Sumner, New Mexico. Dusty and bedraggled, the kid decided to pose for a 25-cent tin-type photograph. For the past several months, Billy had counted on his close relationship with the Hispanic ranchers in Fort Sumter to help elude capture. And it was rumored that he'd fallen in love with a 16-year-old Hispanic girl named Paulina Maxwell. Now, before you go uh, give him the Jerry Lee Lewis treatment, he probably was not much older than her. I think he was probably 17. Um, And that picture, it is the one confirmed photo of Billy the Kid that's in existence, and it really puts into question the claim that he was good-looking, because everyone said that he was handsome, and in that picture, he looks like he had a stroke. Uh, It's the one where he's got not one, but two wandering eyes, and he has the Godfather mouth, where it's sagging, like he had a stroke. And that is the only known photograph of Billy the Kid. I saw one where they swore it was him as a young boy, but nobody knows. Other than word of mouth, it was passed down from somebody's family because they were related somehow to his cousin or something. So, Paulina Maxwell. Uh, Years later, Paulina would say that the photo taken on that day did not do him justice. Paulina would have seen, seen a slim, attractive young man with dancing eyes, mischievous smile. Yeah, sure, he was scarred, he was battered, but he was a man who still had his dreams... So she would have seen that great yearning in his spirit and been attracted to him, which a lot of people were. Billy was always looking for a family after the death of his mother. He wanted a home, and that's one thing that he never really had and he couldn't get. But he fell in love with Fort Sumner, and he felt that that was home, I think. And a hundred miles away in the town of Lincoln, they had a new sheriff who was determined to make a name for himself. He was ambitious as fuck, and his name was Pat Garrett, a man on the rise. A man who wanted to be respectable. He wanted to be a famous lawman like uh, he wanted to be a famous lawman like Wyatt Earp and whatnot. On December twenty third, eighteen eighty, and taken to Santa Fe, New Mexico, for trial. Young Billy was jailed in the town of Mesilla, south of Santa Fe, while waiting for the April eighteen eighty one trial. Deliberation took exactly one day, and Billy was convicted of murdering Sheriff William Bradley or William Brady, and sentenced to hang by Judge Warren Bristol. His execution was scheduled for May the 13th, and he was sent to Lincoln to await his state. There he was under the guard of James Bell, Robert Olinger, on the top floor of the building formerly known as the House before and during the Lincoln County War. On April 28th, Billy somehow escaped and killed both of his guards while Garrett was out of town. Supposedly he gave the second guard both barrels of the shotgun. It is not known how Billy was able to do this, but it's widely believed that a friend or regulator sympathizer left a pistol in the shitter that one of the guards had escorted Billy to. After shooting Deputy Bell with the pistol, 
Billy stole Olinger's 10-gauge double-barrel shotgun and waited for Olinger by the window in the room he was being held in. Olinger obliged by running immediately from the hotel upon hearing the shots because he was having dinner. While he waited directly under the window of the courthouse, he heard his prisoner say, Hello, Bob. Olinger then looked up and saw the kid with his gun in hand, and it was the last thing that he ever saw. It was Billy blasting him in the face with both barrels from his own shotgun, killing him immediately. This would, however, be Billy's last escape. When Pat Garrett was questioning uh, Billy's friend Peter Maxwell on July 14th, 81, in Maxwell's darkened bedroom in Old Fort Sumner, Billy unexpectedly entered the room. The kid didn't recognize Garrett in the shit lighting, and he asked, Quien es? Which is, who is it? In Spanish. <laughs> to which Garrett responded with two shots from his revolver, first striking First one striking Billy in the heart. Henry McCarty, the infamous Billy the Kid, was buried in a plot between his dead friends Tom O'Folliard and Charlie Beaudry the next day at Fort Sumner Cemetery. Sometime in the middle of the night, a stranger came up to Billy's grave and carved the word PALS on his headstone. In his short life, Billy the Kid was reputed to have killed 21 men, one for each year of his life. However, many historians calculate the figure closer to nine. Four on his own and five with the help of the, the regulators. Over a hundred years later, in 2010, New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson considered honoring the 1879 promise to pardon the kid made by Governor Lou Wallace. But Richardson backed off the idea, citing historical, historical ambiguity surrounding Wallace's pardon and didn't deem it was necessary to do it. So, as with most things, there are a lot of controversies surrounding the death or alleged death of Billy the Kid. Um, there's one of which that I believe. The, the main accepted theory is that Billy the Kid was shot and killed by his friend and uh, recently elected lawman Pat Garrett. Most people... It makes the most sense. However, I don't subscribe to that theory. I subscribe to this one. In 1948, a lawyer named William Morrison located an elderly man named Joe Hines, who had requested the lands of his deceased brother. Hines had confessed that he was the outlaw Jesse Evans, who had vanished from public view after getting released from a Texas prison in 1882. Hines told Morrison of his experiences in the Lincoln County War and surprised him by claiming that Billy the Kid was still alive and near Hamilton in Texas under the name Ole P. Roberts, nicknamed Brushy Bill. Morrison then began a correspondence with Roberts, who eventually confessed to being the Kid and detailed his supposed exploits as an outlaw. He told anecdotes that, if true, would fill in undocumented gaps in many aspects of the life of Billy the Kid and asked for Morrison's help in acquiring the full pardon that he had been promised by New Mexico Governor Lou Wallace in 1879, but that it, he had been, eventually been refused. He showed his ability to slip out of handcuffs, which was the huge wrist, small hands, and said that Garrett had actually shot and killed a different gunslinger named Billy Barlow and decided to pass the body off as the kids, and he had allowed the kid to vanish and escape to Old Mexico. Roberts told Morrison that he would agree to tell the whole truth in exchange for the full pardon that he had been promised by Lou Wallace following the Lincoln County War for his testimony. His sudden appearance and request for the pardon had a profound effect on Garrett's descendants. Brushy Bill claimed to have been born William Henry Roberts in Buffalo Gap, Texas near Abilene on December 31, 1859, and he claimed to have taken the identity of Oliver P. Roberts around 1910. Detractors of his point, uh, they point to the fact that the family Bible belonging to Oliver Roberts' niece, Geneva Pittman, showed that O.P. Roberts was born in 1879. And because Billy the Kid was 21 at the time of his death in 81 of 1800, if brushy Bill Roberts was born Oliver P. Roberts, then it would be impossible for him to have been the kid, as far as we know by the dates. Supporters of Roberts, though, maintain that the birth date of the real Oliver P. Roberts would have no relevance to a man who assumed the identity later in life. 
It is a worthy note that Brushy Bill, if he had been born in 1859, he would have been 90 at the time of his death from a massive heart attack in Hicko, Texas. Uh, had he been born in 79, though, he would have been only 71 at the time of his death. In addition, Roberts allegedly claimed to be a member of the Jesse James gang before deciding to come out as the true Billy the Kid. In January of 1950, he claimed also that he was a member of the James Younger gang as a teenager and identified as Frank Dalton. Jesus Christ, a.k.a. Jesse James. Morrison, the uh, attorney, he examined Robert's stripped body after his passing. He showed every scar that Billy the Kid reputably had and more. Morrison also attempted to track down former Evans gang member Jim McDaniels and located him in Round Rock, Texas. McDaniels, along with Severo Gallegos, Martile Abel, and Jose Montoya, all of whom had known Billy the Kid, signed affidavits verifying their belief that Roberts was indeed Billy the Kid. Bill and Sam Jones declined to sign any legal documents, and Sam Jones, begging off with the statement, received the letter. Or Sam Jones, begging off with the statement, received your letter, and I'm sorry, but I feel that I can't sign your affidavit. I'm old, and I don't feel like being obligated to anything, so sorry. Bill Jones's grandson expressed doubts about the veracity of Robert's claims in a letter of refusal written on his grandfather's behalf. The kid was fluent in spoken Spanish and could read and write English proficiently. His letters to Governor Wallace seeking a pardon still survive, but the question of whether or not Brushy Bill was even literate is still unsettled. Uh, Brushy and his story were largely forgotten until the movie of Young Guns 2, and it depicted him as the narrator of the events surrounding the life and times of Billy the Kid in the Lincoln County War. More books were written on the mystery, and then research began exploring whether or not Brushy's claim might have actually been true, including several failed attempts for uh, to exhume his body for a DNA test. Numerous books have been published since 1950 examining Brushy's claims, the first of which was Alias Billy the Kid, written by the, that attorney Morrison and the Western historian C.L. Sonishin. This book received mixed reviews at the time, but did win the support from former President Harry S. Truman, who wrote to Morrison, indicting that he believed that Brushy was Billy the Kid and lamenting that he died before able to go in front of the next governor where he may have finally gotten a more favorable result. Like I said, in 2005, W.C. Jameson himself, a student of C.L. Sonishin, re-examined the subject and released Billy the Kid beyond the grave. Jameson's work led to increased interest in Robert's story and it also led to an additional interest in the study, most notably that of former Lincoln County Deputy Sheriff and Mayor of Capitan, New Mexico's Steve Cedarwell. In April 2015, media personality, the ever-charming rapist Bill O'Reilly, weighed in on the topic by publishing his book, Bill O'Reilly's Legends and Liars. Jesus. I don't understand his books. They're funded by Bill O'Reilly, but written by somebody who's educated? I don't get it. The real West in which he suggests that the evidence in favor of brushy Bill Roberts outweighs the accepted version of history, citing the original alias Billy the Kid book by Morrison and Sonishin. O'Reilly followed up his book with an episode on the subject during the national television broadcast purportedly depicting the events that occurred during the alleged killing of the kid from brushy Bill's perspective. In 89, the Lincoln County Heritage Trust commissioned a computer study by forensic anthropologist Clyde Snow. They scanned photographs, one, the certain photograph and then alleged photographs of Billy the Kid and of Brushy Bill Roberts, along with those of 150 other people, and fed them into a computer utilizing a similarity facial recognition scanning software to match 25 facial landmarks, and it resulted in Robert's photo ranking 42nd, with 41 other people more closely resembled the personality or the uh, the bone structure and whatnot of Billy the Kid. Snow indicted that if the two were the same person, then Robert should have ranked at least second. It was noted that the accuracy of facial comparisons are dependent on the position of the face in the photograph. It's hard to say for sure. In 1990, a different study using photo comparison equipment at the Laboratory for Vision Studies, an advanced graphic laboratory in the University of Texas, was conducted by image experts Scott Acton and Alan Bovic. The study corrected 
uh, for facial positioning and used the same face recognition techniques used by the FBI, the CIA, Interpol, and by Macy's Loss Prevention, which are claimed to provide a significant level of statistical validity. Photographs of brushy Bill Roberts at the age of 14 seem to resemble the then well-known terrible tintype picture of Billy the Kid. Photograph of Brushy Bill at 71 was a 93% match. Both Acton and Bovic concluded that this result irrefutably shows that Roberts and the Kid are a very close match. However, these findings would have to be replicated to be scientifically conclusive, which to date has not occurred. And in that case would still not prove that Roberts was Billy the Kid. Uh, Not even a little bit. It would just be that they have similar bone structure. In 1996, the results of the study were presented to Andre McNeil, Chancery Judge of the 12th Judicial District and prominent Arkansas attorney Helen Grinder, who stated that based on the study and other evidence, the case for Roberts being Billy the Kid was fucking strong, substantial, and goddamn excellent. She may not have used the profanity. That might have been me uh, adding flair. In 2003, Lincoln County Sheriff Tom Sullivan, uh, Capitan, New Mexico, Mayor Steve Cedarwell, and... DeBaca County, New Mexico Sheriff Gary Graves began a campaign to exhume the remains of Billy the Kid and his mother, Catherine Antrim, to prove through DNA analysis that it was, in fact, Billy the Kid buried in Fort Sumner. The initiative hit snags from the very beginning, though. First, there's no confirmation as to where the remains are located. Second, were the legalities, with both pro-Bushy Bill Roberts, Brushy Bill Roberts, and anti-Brushy Bill uh, experts, they were all protesting the exhumation. The exhumation of both sets of remains was blocked in court in September 2004. And the Fort Sumner Cemetery, where Billy the Kid allegedly was buried, had been washed out by the Great Pecos River Flood in 1904 anyway. The damage was so great that the remains had to be reburied, and most of them were unidentifiable. Billy's headstone, after being shot by everybody with a gun, did it as a joke, as a quick draw, his headstone had been washed away, and his grave remained unmarked for 28 years. Although a headstone was erected in 32, it's still unknown where the fucking gravesite was. Silver City Cemetery, where Catherine Antrim was buried, was sold in 1882, and the new owner required to relocate the graves outside the city limits. But there's no record to indict whether the bodies were moved or just the headstones. It is possible that other people have been buried in the same grave. It is possible that she had been originally buried in an unmarked grave with the headstone placed by a guesswork later. A guesswork worker later. Considering the length of the time since burial, it's unlikely that the remains... Um, it's it's likely any remains have decomposed completely and there is negligible chance of positively identifying remains if any were even found. Roberts claimed, Catherine Antrim was not his mother but an aunt related by marriage, so a DNA test would be meaningless in any scenario other than Catherine and Billy's remains were both identified, testing and shown to be mother and son. But at the time of his death, Brushy Bill lived on West 2nd Street in Hico, Texas. He was buried in the county seat of Hamilton, 20 miles south. Despite the discrepancies, the Hico Chamber of Commerce has capitalized on his claim by opening the Billy the Kid Museum in the historic western section of Hico. Or Hico? In the downtown is a marker devoted to Brushy Bill. Alias Ole L. Brushy Bill Roberts, alias Billy the Kid, a.k.a. William Bonney, who died in Hico, Texas, December 27, 1950. He spent the last days of his life trying to prove to the world his true identity and obtain a pardon promised to him by the governor of the state of New Mexico, Lou Wallace. So, that's what I subscribe to. Honestly, I believe that guy. He was... He was about to die. I believe him. There's not a whole lot of evidence. I believe him. The facial recognition scanning, it's like a fucking, uh, it's like a lie detector test. It's cute, and you can use it to fucking bluff somebody real hard, but it's not necessarily admissible. However, I do believe this guy. I want to believe this guy really bad. I want to believe that he did get away and that Pat Garrett did not shoot his friend in the back or in the stomach in the dark. It's pretty fucked up if he did. Anyway, it's kind of a long episode, and on that note, 
Thank you all for tuning back in. This has been another episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Spring Jack. And as always, I appreciate your continued patronage. And if you are a new listener, thank you very much for checking us out. Um, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. And if you don't, I do have an open door policy. So if you'd like to get in touch with me and tell me how bad I suck, please do so on Instagram.com slash Duke, D-U-K-E, Landis, L-A-N-D-I-S, 1-7. Send all hate mail and whatnot to my personal Instagram account, and I will get back to you as soon as I see it. And if you have a request for a different type of podcast episode you'd like to hear, this episode was a request. I take requests. I am here for you. Uh, also, I want to give a big shout-out to the state of Texas. I've noticed an aggressive expansion in listeners in Texas, so thank you very much. I know somebody has been sharing my, my podcast around there, and I appreciate it, and I can see it on the map. Texas is lighting up. Thank you very much. Um, please don't hesitate to get in touch. If there's something you want me to cover, I would be glad to. And you can do so by going to Instagram.com slash Duke, D-U-K-E, Landis17, and just send me a message, and I will get back to you as soon as I can. Thank you very much, and as always, stay spooky. <laughs>